0: I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me start off with a question today. I wonder how many of us are Pentecostals. How many of us are Pentecostals? We all are. (laughs) We profess at every Eucharist with the Nicene Creed that we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. All Christians are born anew by the Spirit of God, but how often I think the Spirit is seen as being opposition uh, with the mind. The Spirit is over here, the life of the mind is over here, the two don't go together, or so I think some think. Recently, I saw a picture of a car that was uh, encircled with some markings that were interesting. So it was a car sitting in the middle of a parking lot, and it had a single line around it in a circle. And then the second ring, the outer ring, was a dotted line. So it was circled with a single line and then a dotted line. That's not very interesting and uh, probably not the best way to begin a sermon, except if you knew that this was a self-driving car. And there was some sort of algorithm in the way that it was, uh, it was tuned uh, where it had what was called a no-entry glyph, which simply meant that according to road rules, the car, the self-driving car, could enter into the circle Right? It could pass over the dotted lines, just as we would on the road. You can pass on a dotted line, right? But it couldn't leave the circle according to road rules. And it was a self-driving car programmed to obey road rules. And the picture that I saw was, was much larger than just the parking lot in which it sat. There was a road stretching out into the distance, and it was like on the coast of California, and there was just beauty to be explored, and yet here was this car stuck in a dead-end circle. I think that we are often like this car, having been programmed to give obeisance to certain cultural norms or stereotypes, our own road rules, and these often become a part of who we are. They, They function within us subconsciously. We don't even really think about them. And we find ourselves unable to live outside the circle, to see the larger world, to live into possibilities of exploration of a larger life, and often without even knowing it. One such trap I would suggest to you this morning is a popular misconception, again, about the relationship between the mind and the spirit, for which St. Paul today offers a healthy corrective. So put simply, in Romans 8, Paul affirms that the spirit is not opposed to the mind. Quite the contrary, he asserts. The spirit inflames the mind, and it sets it on the path to the source of all knowledge and all understanding. In other words, the true life of the mind springs from the life of the spirit. Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So Paul is here not saying that one cannot live an intellectually interesting life without the Spirit or that knowledge cannot at all be attained without the Spirit. But what he is saying is not less challenging. It is in fact more He is saying, in his own words, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In other words, I think whereas our culture often uh, might conceive of free thinkers, of open-minded people as those outside the circle and those who are spiritually programmed as stuck inside the circle, Paul flips this completely the other way around. And there are a few points that we still need to tease out here to understand what Paul is getting at. So again, Paul wants us to know that the Spirit, according to God's nature and design, is not opposed to the mind. Again, this is not how we often tend to think about it. But our cultural assumptions are often very different from Paul. We live in a culture that sees the mind and the spirit to be of different spheres, perhaps even in opposition. We think that the spirit is ethereal and the mind thrives through the measurable. The spirit is inaccessible. The mind is oriented towards the empirically verifiable, what can be tasted and touched and seen. In other words, the spirit is for wackos... And the mind is for realists. But this is not a Christian belief. (laughs) And we have to be clear about this. In Christian theology, mind and spirit spring from the same source, a personal God who is at once totally spiritual and the fount of all knowledge and wisdom. And this should stand as a challenge to us, I think, especially as Episcopalians. I mean, don't we often joke or even seriously believe that our tradition is the one of sophistication, that we are a church that appreciates the life of the mind and we're not gonna be given over to the charismania of the spirit. We're ordered, we're aesthetically appreciative. We're certainly not about to go off the rails by becoming one of those Holy Spirit churches. To be clear, This is a false narrative rooted in a false dichotomy where the mind and the spirit have been wedged apart. And it's foreign to Scripture. So, in his famous 1978 Harvard commencement speech, Alexander Solzhenitsyn speaks to the historical source of this exact and false division between mind and spirit. You may know uh, Solzhenitsyn was a uh, Russian poet and author, um, a philosopher and historian. Um, He condemned uh, Soviet Union and communism, um, pointed out, uh, condemned really the the gulag death camps, was uh, a tremendous thinker. Here's what he said about this division. The Middle Ages had come to a natural end by exhaustion, becoming an intolerable, despotic repression of man's physical nature in favor of the spiritual one. Then, however, we turned our backs on this spirit and embraced all that is material with excessive and unwarranted zeal. The upshot of this, he writes, we have placed too much hope in political and social reforms, as important as they may be, only to find out that we were being deprived of our most precious possession, our spiritual life. So he's saying they've been wedged apart, and they need to be brought back together. Don't we see this at points in our churches? The satirical magazine, The Onion, um, which I've read from time to time, ran an article several years ago, and the headline of this satirical article was, Pope Francis concerned about infection from Holy Spirit bite. Now, obviously, again, it's satire, but we're so often uncomfortable or simply unable to talk about what the Spirit might be doing within our lives, in and among us, in the church, After all, that's the province of the charismatics, we think. Such talk is undignified and unsophisticated, intellectually shallow, but most importantly, it's un-Episcopalian. But when we were given over to this sort of thinking, I would suggest that we are entrapped in a dangerous, dead-end circle due to the programming of actually a secular worldview. We're stuck in a circle that is not at its source Christian, in other words. We're giving obeisance to this false narrative. And it should not surprise us if we do this, even implicitly, but not intentionally. It should not surprise us that when our kids go to college, they end up jettisoning their faith at points. Again, we must look to Paul. And in doing so, we understand that Christians are not those who walk according to the flesh. By the way, flesh and mind are different in the thought of Paul but we walk according to the Spirit, and in the Spirit, our minds are set on life and peace. So this life and peace that Paul mentions is the hope of verses nine through 11, which demonstrate just how this worldly, the implications of the work of the Spirit are, chiefly in resurrection. The work of the Spirit is not just ethereal and abstract or something like that. It is about the rejoining of body and soul, spirit and matter, for eternity. The entire point of verses 9 through 11 is not that Christ followers are a group of people who have stopped being human or intellectually engaged, and that the point of the spiritual life is to get rid of the shell of a body. But know that we will be set free when we set our minds on the spirit to become more genuinely human as God intended in the garden as he created us. This is a group of people who can be daily raised out of the tombs of a fleshly existence where life is divorced from the spirit and where our bodies are exiled even at points from our very own selves. We don't have full control over them, where the stuff of this life often leads to a dead end of decay and death. But the Spirit that Paul speaks to is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, through whom God spoke creation into existence. This is the Spirit of God that dwells in the hearts of all Christians, of all those joined to Christ in baptism. And this spirit will give life to our mortal bodies, which is not only a future promise. Instead, those who set their minds on the spirit, well, they are like the Olympic gold medalist runner, Eric Little. You've probably heard him um, spoken of before, perhaps even sermons. But, uh, you know, he's famous for having said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. I think that's an illustrative quote for us. Eric Little was not less human because of his faith. He was not less bodily engaged in his vocation because of his commitment to life in the Spirit. No, he was set free, actually, to do it to the glory of God, to literally run out of a dead-end circle of a fleshly way of thinking. And his passion just reflected the glory of God. So unlike those whom Paul mentions as being in the flesh, who cannot please God, here was a deeply physical and mentally tough Christian doing what God, I think, had created him to do. It brought pleasure, except maybe to his competitors. So how might we do likewise? How are we to set our minds on the Spirit, and what would that look like within our own vocations? and our families, and our friendships. Now, we have to be honest. I think that we are novices at this. At least I know I am. I'm still learning how to pursue the life of the Spirit. We often joke about engaging the Spirit because we have no idea how to do it. But Paul does give us a clue in Romans 12 2, when he writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Isn't that interesting? So that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect, acceptable. In other words, the grace of God that Paul has spoken of throughout Romans calls forth to us to take every thought captive, to surrender our thoughts to grace. And such surrender requires incredible intentionality of the mind, intentionality that might arise by just asking ourselves questions that are helpful in life. What do I find myself thinking about most often this day? for instance. Again, Solzhenitsyn wrote, Under the constant desire to have still more things and a still better life and the struggle to attain them, this imprints many Western faces with worry and even depression, though it is customary to conceal such feelings. Active and tense competition fills all human thoughts without opening a way to free spiritual development. He's speaking to the way in which we often have road rules that form and shape us to live as if we're just on the hamster wheel, that life is fundamentally, at its core, competitive, and that there's not enough to go around, that we must grasp and take. But the life of grace is that in the cross there is no competition. There is sheer gift the eternal and infinite gift of God giving His own life to us, which means that we are called to not forsake the stuff of this life, seeing it as somehow less spiritual or something, but rather to put all of who we are, all that we have, all our possessions, all of our being, our anxieties, our fears, our hopes and dreams, and to place those things on the altar of God and ask Him to make His grace manifest within them, as Eric Little did with his gift of running. And in this is freedom. Such freedom could look like us inviting God's Spirit into our daily decision-making at the office or in the home. I recently listened to a podcast where it was a leadership podcast, and he was just simply urging people to, to ask the question, well, what would a great leader do in this situation? And to get in the habit of doing that when making decisions. What would a great parent do in this situation? And such intentionality creates tire tracks within our souls. As we do this. But the better and the Christian thing, I think, is to ask what would a great leader or parent whose mind is set on the Spirit do in this situation? And to ask this question is to invite an answer from the Spirit of God or from the people He places in your life, from Holy Scripture, from moments of prayer or solitude, or even from moments of crazy phoneticism as we're traveling on the road for, for sports with our kids or in the midst of a family meltdown. The burning bush shows up often when we're not expecting it. You see, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit will not come naturally at first, but like any and every habit... Our neural pathways and our habits of the heart will open up and will harden through consistency, like every habit. Again, the spirit and the mind are not opposed. They function together. And so we must become like children who are tutored by the Spirit of God our Father. There was a great Dominican scholar who wrote, "...the child in knowledge, stammering in his effort at expression." most naturally looks to find the word he wants in the glance of God. I love that. So when I walk in this afternoon and I see my son, he'll look to me and I'll look to him and I'll find pleasure in him. And that pleasure that he sees in my eyes will cause delight within him too. This is the spiritual life. Turning to God and encountering the delight that exists and takes shape between us and God. That is God's spirit within us, swelling. So how would our minds, our desires, our decisions and our actions change if this was the case for us? When we set our minds on the spirit, this is what we are doing. We are glancing at the God who dwells in us closer to our hearts than we are to our very own selves, and he will reveal to us what we truly want. So like children, we learn to follow His eyes and hear what He says so that we might reach the right and the just and the true and the merciful conclusion so that our thinking might transcend the narrow dead-end circles that we so often inhabit. We have followed the road rules of the flesh too often, but we need not be trapped in the dead-end circle anymore. So I'll just close simply by asking this question. Do you want to be a person who appreciates the life of the mind? If so, we must become people who appreciate the life of the Spirit and set our mind on the Spirit, in whom there is life and peace. Amen.